You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. Thanksgiving. Do you have a good Thanksgiving? All right, good. Uh, Today we are going to be starting our uh, Christmas series, which we are calling Welcome to the Mystery. So uh, this year we want to celebrate the one mystery that promises hope uh, in midst of a world full of questions, which we certainly have at the moment. Um, And so that is um, the incarnation of Christ that gives us the assurance that God does indeed love us and is inviting us into the hope and assurance that our Messiah has come and uh, will come again. Uh, So let me be the first to wish you Merry Christmas. Actually, you know, I'm going to give you a little heads up. This is a little shorter message. Uh, I'm only going to keep you here for an hour and a half rather than two hours that I normally do. Uh, So actually, why don't you go ahead and wish somebody uh, near you a Merry Christmas. And if you haven't uh, met them before, say hello. Introduce yourself. I like that. A lot of Merry Christmases. So maybe you can keep that up as you go along and just keep wishing people a Merry Christmas. Um, So I'm going to be honest with you. It was a bit of a hectic week with a holiday and that sort of thing. Um, So I would really like to pray over this message, if that's all right, uh, just because um, I want God to be glorified. Uh, So Heavenly Father, we do give you praise. We do give you glory. We give you honor, Lord God. You are, are worthy of all that we have. And so, Father, I, I, I would just ask that you would bless the words that are spoken, um, that this would just be all of you and none of me, Lord God. And uh, we just want to meet with you and spend time with you as your kids. We love you very much, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, so it is, the Christ- whether you like it or not, the Christmas season is upon us. So um, to start this off, uh, many of you... Uh, may have a Christmas tradition that you're looking forward to celebrating. So, uh, does anybody have a Christmas tradition that they're looking forward to? Yes, Anne. Mosaic on Christmas Eve. Mosaic on Christmas Eve. Oh, that's a good one. It's going to be hard to top. Everybody's like, yes. Um, my dad's family, we all go around and Very nice. Okay, so Mickey's family, they all read the story of Jesus. Who has another one? There you go. That's right, Christopher. You have 27 more days until you have to worry about Christmas shopping. Yeah. So in our family, uh, you know, uh, we're probably no different than a lot of families. We, we watch a lot of movies over the Christmas holidays, right? Cold, wet winter days. It's not, nothing better than curling up and, and watching a good movie. Um, our Christmas tradition is to watch Elf. Um, I know that uh, uh, there are probably more, um, I don't know, Nicer movies to watch, but we have a lot of fun. Always thinking about Christopher, that one time that he came as a... <laughs> Actually, funny, when uh, Christopher first arrived at Mosaic, we're like, hey, it's Buddy the Elf. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
So that's one of the things that we always do is we watch, we sit down as a family and watch Elf. But one of the other movies that we typically watch, uh, my kids and I, is we sit down and we try to watch the entire Lord of the Rings. Um, Now, while I hesitate to say that that's a tradition, we do do it quite a bit over Christmas, over the Christmases. Uh, And so if you're not familiar uh, with the Lord of the Rings, uh, they are based on a series of books which were written by J.R. Tolkien. And they have served, these were written uh, in the, uh, they I think were first published in the early 1940s. And they serve as the prototype for the epic fantasy novel. Uh, And so in this story, basically a small group of adventurers undertake a quest to destroy the one ring, which is a talisman uh, that, if unmade, will bring down Sauron, who is the main antagonist that basically seeks to subjugate the world of Middle-earth. Tolkien, as the author, he was a devout Christian. Now, he hated allegory, so he didn't intend the Lord of Rings uh, to be a Christian allegory. He did not want that at all. However, because he was a devout Christian, uh, the Lord of the Rings, he couldn't escape his Christian faith. And so uh, the Lord of the Rings is just full of Christian themes. They run throughout the books. Uh, So for instance, um, uh, the one ring actually represents uh, or is thematic of the power of sin uh, to seduce and corrupt even the noblest of people. Uh, many of the characters also uh, kind of represent Christ-like themes. Uh, so, for instance, um, uh, the Christian theme of the death and the resurrection are actually represented by Gandalf as he kind of walks through his own death, his own descent into darkness, and his own resurrection and a glorified body. Um, likewise, uh, the theme of Christ as a faithful servant is actually show, shows up in the hobbit uh, Samwise Gamgee, who is always there to support and encourage Frodo as he sur- struggles to destroy uh, the power of the One Ring. And then finally, the theme of Christ, the uh, coming king, um, is represented by Aragorn, uh, who actually does come again as, as the king of, um, of Gondor. So I have, to, I have to admit, I'm, I'm a nerd at heart, always have been, and I have always been drawn to the epic fantasy story ever since I was a young child. I, I just uh, um, was drawn to it, and I actually know that there are probably a lot of other people in here that are drawn to the same sort of thing. It surprised me after the 9 o'clock service who came up to me and said, oh, I love the Lord of the Rings. I'm like, really? I wouldn't have thought it. And so just out of curiosity, how many when I said Lord of the Rings went, did yeah or maybe you went thou you shall not pass right um okay yeah so uh it's actually worked its way into our culture but anyhow i've always been drawn to the epic fantasy novel and i I thought about you know why why is that what do i really you know love about that kind of story so i really like a good story where the characters have to learn how to walk out their destiny before they can complete some heroic deed for the good of those around them. I'm always drawn to the companionship that often occurs in these types of stories, uh, and in that companionship, they experience and uh, per, uh, I'm sorry, they, the experiences they share and the personal sacrifice that often has to be offered in order for whatever uh, success must be achieved. But most of all, what I think I love about the stories is the epic struggle of good versus evil, which plays out not only at the level of individual characters, but also through great battles against overwhelming odds. 
uh, you know, I've always been drawn to the big epic story, if you would. So you might ask, what does that have to do with Christmas? Well, let me tell you, okay? One of the things that has actually drawn me to the Christian faith and continues to draw me to the Christian faith is that it is, in and of itself, an epic story. But it's not some made-up fantasy. It's not. It's actual history. And so, um, what does that have to do with Christmas? Christmas is smack dab in the middle of that epic history. So, um, our history begins with God. The great I am, creating the heavens and the earth and all that is in it. He forms man from the dust and gives him life by breathing life into him. All is good because God is good. It truly is paradise on earth because we walk with him, we talk with him, and we have communion with him. Then evil makes itself known. Through deception, it causes man to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil the one thing that God had forbidden. That seemingly one small act of rebellion severs our bonds with God, and we and all of creation fall under the curse of sin and death. It goes downhill from there as the wickedness of people grows so great that God must ultimately send a flood to destroy all but a handful of righteous people. But God is good, and God is gracious. So he begins to enact a plan to rescue his people, his creation, from the evil that has beset them. He begins forming a covenant with Abraham, a man of great faith, through whom he will bless all the peoples on earth. Over time, God turns this one man's family into a nation, a blessed people, a chosen people. For a while, they know hardship, bound in slavery in Egypt, But God uses Moses to perform great miracles so that Pharaoh will let his people go. In the desert, God then begins to teach his people how to love and worship and behave in a manner that is pleasing to him. He shows his people the way to reconciliation and purification through a blood sacrifice, the element that is to God the very essence of life. If they can but obey, his very presence will be with him with them so despite some setbacks god ultimately or finally brings his people to the land promised to their father abraham so many years before he institutes his form of government and for a while there's blessing and peace both with the people and within the land but the evil that is within the people it persists and as centuries and generations go by god's people they begin to falter They reject God's form of government, and instead they clamor for a king. Give us a king. Give us a king. God reluctantly grants that wish, because he knows that as the king goes, so goes the people. At times, they have a good king, one who seeks after God and the people prosper. Most times, however, the king is wicked, seeking and worshiping idols of lesser gods. Even the priests, the very ones who are to lead God's people in worship, pervert God's ways for holy living, turning them into something for their own glory and profit. God sends prophets to warn his people to repent, but they often refuse, so they suffer dire consequences, even exile from the promised land. But God will not give up. He continues to work out his plan of salvation, and he uses his prophets to share that plan. 
through the prophet Isaiah, he states, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And through the prophet Micah, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So in our story, a king is coming, a good king, a wise king, and a mighty king. A king is coming, one of an ancient bloodline who will establish an eternal kingdom filled with peace, justice, and righteousness. A king is coming. Sorry. The zeal, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. For those with the ears to hear, they wait They watch, and they hope. Centuries pass until finally, and if you would like to read along with me, this is Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Centuries pass until finally, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. You, So the Holy One uh, to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Nine months later, in a town too small to barely mention, a king was born to humble beginnings. He was wrapped in, a, in cloth and laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. None of it was worthy of a king. None of it was majestic. But in that one moment, the co- course of human history, the course of our history, would be changed forever. 
it was the beginning of the great correction that only a good king, a great king, in fact, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, could bring about in God's creation. You want to know why I love Christmas? It's because the king has come. So during Christmas, we often talk about Jesus as Savior, Jesus as Messiah, the coming Messiah, and it's good and right to do so. But Christmas also points to Jesus as a long-awaited king. He is heralded as such at least three times in the Christmas narrative. So today, you know, we talk a lot about, oh, yeah, Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. But what does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be a good king, to be a true king? And so that's what I'd like just to share with you today, a few thoughts about that. Um, there are a lot of different things that we could discuss. I just want to share with you four. The first thing about a true king is that he is identified as such by his blood. The fact, the blood of Jesus was very special. Matter of fact, it was unique. Nobody else has had or will ever have the same kind of blood, if you would, that Jesus had. First and foremost, his blood was royal. A king is king by birthright. Kings don't get voted into power. They are born into power. So to be a king, you have to have the blood of a king. There are two genealogies associated with the Christmas story, one in the beginning of Matthew and then the other in Luke 3. If you compare them and look at them side by side, you'll notice that they are not the same, which is, you know, kind of one of those things like, oh, you know, the Bible's not consistent with itself. Um, but that's not what most scholars think. Most scholars think that one of the genealogy traces Jesus' lineage through his father, Joseph, the other one traces Jesus' lineage through his mother, Mary. And if you look at both of those, yeah, there are some differences, you know, I guess in the generations closest to Jesus. But as you start to go back, you'll notice that they become closer and closer until ultimately they start to have the same names in common. And there are, there's one name in particular that is essential, in a sense, to the royal, royal nature of Jesus' blood, and that's David. And when you look at both Joseph and Mary, you'll see that both of them are descendants of David, which makes Jesus a descendant of, of David. And why is that important? Well, the line of David is really the only line of kings that the Jews have really ever known or recognized. And so uh, that gives him royal blood. And because he has royal blood, his blood has great value. I mean, suffice it to say, and I know in America we don't put much stock in kings, but there's something of value about king's blood. People die in order to preserve, in a sense, king's blood. So it's very valuable. The other thing, though, about his blood is that it was also divine. The virgin birth declares that the father of Jesus was God through the Holy Spirit. So that means that his blood was not just of great value, but it was also pure. And both of those things were needed for the redeeming sacrifice that would ultimately be made by Christ on the cross. It is through his blood, both the, the value and the purity of his blood, that we have redemption for our sins. 
Basically, he traded his perfection for our perfection, imperfection, his blood for our sin. So a true king is identified by his blood. Second thing is a true king is sovereign above all else. He has all authority. Now, whether you know it, there's actually two kings in the Christmas story. The first one is Jesus. The second one is Herod. Very good, yeah. Second one is Herod. And so when you look at the story of the three wise men, the three magi, their story is actually kind of a little bit ironic. It's actually kind of amazing that they didn't get killed. Um, Because, um, you know, they go to Jerusalem, which is where King Herod lives. That's where his palace is. And they start wandering around, and they're asking, does anybody know where the king of the Jews has been born? They don't go to the palace. They're just looking, really, for Bethlehem. They say, we followed his star, and this is where it led us. Does anybody know where the king of the Jews has been born? And so Herod gets wind of this, and so he finally invites the Magi to the palace and asks, where has this, you know, it kind of finds out what is this quest all about. And they, they actually confess to him. We're looking for the king of the Jews, and you ain't it. <laughs> you know, it's basically what they tell him. Um, so Herod had to be shocked that somewhere born in Bethlehem was somebody that had authority over him. That Herod himself was not the true king. Now, while Jesus was an infant, he doesn't show much of that kingly authority right? But it certainly is apparent as he begins his ministry. He demonstrated his authority in spiritual matters as he taught about the kingdom of heaven, often stunning religious leaders into complete silence. They didn't know how to handle his authority in spiritual matters. He demonstrated his authority to forgive sin and make others do the same as he confronted the mob, bringing the woman caught in adultery to him. So if you don't remember that story, a mob brings a woman who is caught in adultery to Jesus, and they're basically ready to stone her, and they want Jesus, in a sense, to throw the first stone. So what does he do? He bends down and starts to write something in the sand. We don't know what it is, but whatever it is starts to convict. First the older ones, uh, and they start to say, uh, Okay, maybe I don't want any of this. And then finally the younger ones, and finally until the entire mob goes away. And so Jesus says, basically, where are those that would convict you? Are there none here? And she says, no. So Jesus says, then neither do I. And so he says, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. So he has the authority to forgive sin. He demonstrated his authority over disease as he made the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, and the blind to see. He demonstrated his authority over the natural uh, as he calmed the sea and turned water into wine. He demonstrated his authority over the darkness, over evil itself, as he cast out demons and resisted the temptations of the devil. He even demonstrated his authority over death as he raised Lazarus from the grave. He is sovereign over all. And that includes all the things in your life that might be keeping you from celebrating him this Christmas. He is sovereign over your sin, your sickness, your guilt, your pain, both emotional, spiritual, and physical. He is sovereign over all. He has the authority and the ability to change who you are regardless of what your situation is. He has the authority and the ability to make it better. All you have to do 
is be willing to enter into that. Just ask. Say, Jesus, change who I am. You haven't heard many of my messages before. Um, that is something I pray all the time. Change who I am, and he will do it. The third thing about a true king is that a true king will make sacrifices for the benefits of his people. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is a central tenet of our faith, but it's not the only sacrifice he made for his people. So I'm about to ask a question. Christopher, you're not allowed to answer because you were here in the first service. So, shh. Okay? Question. What was the first sacrifice that Christ made for his people? Being born, which... That's not the sacrifice itself. What was the sacrifice that he made? Yes, there you go. Yeah, so his first sacrifice is he gave up heaven for us. Um, Philippians 2 puts it this way. uh, uh, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance uh, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. His first sacrifice was to give up heaven. At his birth, he humbled himself, giving up everything to become nothing. He gave up the worship of the angels. He gave up his seat at the right hand of the Father. He gave up his crown. He gave up his throne. Okay? He gave up his home in paradise to become nothing. Straight up, I have no words to express really what that sacrifice must have been like. I have no words to express it simply because I'm not Jesus and I've never been to heaven. I can only imagine. So the best I can suggest is this is that it would be like Bill Gates giving up all his money, power, and possessions to go live in the middle of the Sahara Desert in nothing but his underwear. And yes, you're welcome for having that thought in, the re- in your head for the rest of the day. Okay? okay? So just imagine this extremely wealthy man giving up everything that he has for you. That's what Jesus did when he came to be born in a manger. I can tell you this, from the moment he arrived until his death, he never stopped making sacrifices for the benefit of his people. He could have come down with throngs of angels. He could have. He really, and actually, his second coming will probably be a lot more like that. He could have come down with throngs of angels, but instead, he chose to be born as a helpless babe in a manger. He could have chosen to live in a palace. He could have. His people wanted to put him there. So he could have chosen to live in a palace, but instead, he chose to have no home. He could have had angels take care of his every need. Satan tempts him that with that uh, as, you know, he's tempting him out in the desert. But instead, he chose to fast for 40 days and nights. He ultimately humbled himself to a place where he would not only experience death, but a complete degradating death and a horrible death at that. He did all this, humbled himself in all this, so that he could serve us, so that you and I might have a chance to spend eternity 
with our Father in heaven. So, I think a question for us this Christmas is how are we going to respond to Christ's sacrificial giving, to his sacrificial love? Are we going to just give him a, a casual nod as we experience the business, busyness of the season? Or are we actually going to make a concerted effort to kneel down and worship the King of Kings like it deserves? He became nothing so that you and I might have everything. I think offering him, his wor- offering him worship this Christmas season is kind of the least that we can do for him. Finally, the fourth thing about a true king is that he leaves a legacy. So a legacy is that which is left behind that has lasting effects long after the person is gone. So a true king has a vision of what's best for his kingdom for generations to come, and he takes action to accomplish or bring about that vision. He builds his legacy. So when the angel first came to Mary, he told her that her, his, told her that her son would have quite a legacy. He says, The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So as Jesus conducted his ministry, he showed that he was deeply concerned about building his legacy. What's the one thing that he taught most about? The kingdom of heaven, exactly. So most of what he taught about uh, was his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven and how to enter it. In fact, most of his preaching and miracle working had that one primary purpose in mind, to bring people into his kingdom. So if you think about that in terms of legacy, so if you think about all that Jesus did leading up to his death on a cross and how that is still bringing millions of people to faith in Christ 2,000 years later, that is a legacy. So you and I are not only part of that legacy, we can participate in building that legacy. So this Christmas... I'd encourage you not to be shy, certainly about saying Merry Christmas, but also don't be shy about inviting someone to hear about the hope that is Jesus. Um, You know, I mean, we're pretty innocent. You know, we're not going to do anything wild and crazy. I hope we're not a cult, right? We're not a cult, are we? Okay. (laughs) Right? So, I mean, you know, invite somebody. I've always thought that for whatever, you know, that around this time of year, people are a little bit more open to hearing about Jesus. I think God just shares his spirit. Maybe he just pours out a little extra dose around this time of year. So, um, you know, I think people would be willing to come and, you know, come to uh, church in the Christmas season. And, um, you know, maybe they're actually thinking that they're going to come to hear about a little, you know, a humble little baby in a manger. But maybe what they'll actually hear is about their long-awaited Savior. You never know unless you ask. So just to kind of finish this up, Christmas is an important part of our epic history. It really is. That is an epic history that you and I, we're still living in because the story is not over. We know what the end is going to be, but it has yet to arrive. And that ending, that's going to be pretty epic. Uh, (laughs) So Christmas, it is It's an important part of that story because it changes the situation from one of hopelessness, one of 
evil dominating to a great correction where good is ultimately going to win out. And so Christmas, you know, the humble birth of a babe in a manger, it may not look like much, but there in a stable, we find the hope of our hearts, the hope of all mankind. There lying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, the greatest, the truest king the world has ever known was born. He is the true king by the royalty and divinity of his blood. He is the true king because he is absolutely sovereign in his authority and eternal in his reign. He is the true king because he has made the greatest sacrifice for the benefit of his people. He was willing to lay down his life so that we may spend eternity in the arms of the Father. He is the true king because he has left a legacy, his kingdom, in which all are welcome and all can experience joy, peace, and above all, love. He is the true king. So he is worth bending the knee to. He is worthy of our worship, and he is worthy of our obedience. So if you ask why Christmas means so much to me, is because always running through my head is that thought that the king has come. The king has come. So take some time to bow down and worship him. Worship that babe in the manger because he is king of kings and lord of lords. So as Christopher comes and leads us in a time of worship, take some let your heart enter into that. Let your heart enter into the worship of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then, if you need to pray, uh, if Mike, if you wouldn't mind maybe standing over here, I'll stand over here. If you need somebody to pray with, uh, maybe you struggle entering into the Christmas season. Maybe you struggle seeing the glorious thing that the birth of Jesus represents. Boy, I'd love to pray with you because I want you to know the joy, the peace, the love that was extended to all humans in that one moment. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.